Welcome to episode 9 of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is a podcast where we discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave period of the late 70s and early 80s. And as I was such a big fan of the band we are discussing today, I think it's only fitting that I introduce the subject of today's podcast. When it comes to influential bands emanating from Liverpool, they don't come any bigger than Echo and the Bunnymen. Okay, maybe there was one other band that captured the hearts and minds of a previous generation, but when I first saw Ian McCulloch and Cohen full flight, I was in love and I knew these songs would resonate with me for many years to come. From the reptilian snap of crocodiles, the otherworldly heaven up here, the sharpened spine of porcupine, to the pop deluge of ocean rain, the post-punk output of Echo and the Bunnymen cemented their place in the pantheon of new wave greats, and for these reasons, to me, they will always be the Fab Four. Very nice. Thank you. That took me ages. <laughs> um, so where to begin? Yeah, where to begin? At the w- beginning. Yes, okay. Well, the sort of legend, I suppose, of post-punk music in Liverpool or even punk music in Liverpool seems to often come back to the mythical band by the name of The Crucial Three mm. and the extent to which the band existed and what they really did and, and so on has always been a, like, a little bit shrouded in mystery. Who but, were The Crucial Three? Well, that's, that's the question. It was May 1977 and a young lad named Julian Cope had gone to see The Clash and he was dancing wildly around and he was treading on the toes of everyone around him. And afterwards he met one of the people whose toes he'd been treading on mm-hmm. and that was a fellow called Pete Wiley. And they got talking. <laughs> when he stood on his toes, he didn't go wild, did he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wasn't his real surname. It was, it was an onomatopoeic nickname. Okay. And Pete Wiley then introduced Julian Cope to a friend of his. He, he said, here's me mate Duke. He thinks he's... Dave Bowie. Is that your Liverpool accent? Yeah, it's as good as it oh, gets. Okay. And <laughs> we'll work on that. So Duke, as in the thin white Duke. Oh, okay. Yeah, was this fellow who wanted to be Dave Bowie. And the way Julian Cope tells the story in his memoir Head On, he took a look at this bloke with his, I think it was um, Joey Ramone, kind of lanky hair and thick glasses and thick lips and described him as a total dork. And this was the first meeting okay. of the Crucial Three. And Pete Wiley, who ended up forming bands with various names with wah in them. And Julian Cope performed Teardrop Explodes. And, of course, Ian Bartholomew McCulloch, if that is indeed his middle name, who then formed subsequently Echo and the Bunnymen. But, uh, yeah, basically Ian McCulloch and Julian Cope and Pete Wiley did form a band for about eight minutes called The Crucial Three. And they never performed live or anything? No, no, I think they just had one rehearsal where they were just mucking around talking about, you know, Iggy Pop. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was Well, it, it's, that almost, was it, it's almost like the opposite of a supergroup, isn't it? You yeah. Know, you yeah. know how when, when, when famous musicians get together and form a band, these guys were together before they became famous. Yeah, and yeah. each one of them received a certain amount of notoriety yeah, after, yeah. This, after this band. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And when Julian Cope and Ian McCulloch were writing songs together, they, they, they formed a band called, huh? U H question mark, <laughs> and and uh, then they went by another name, and then Julian Cope basically asked Ian McCulloch to leave and formed a band with someone from another band, which left the guitarist from that second band, Will Sargent, without a band. So right. Ian McCulloch was without a band. Will Sargent was without a band. The two of them formed Echo and the Bunnymen. Nice, confused. Okay. You will be. <laughs> There's more is, where that came from. This is like we're recapping a soap opera or something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like a family tree. Yes. This, is, this is what happened before. And so what year was uh, this initial Echo and the Bunnymen? This was 19, 1978 when Julian Cope and Ian McCulloch were... This is when, uh, when they went their separate ways. Yeah, yeah. Right. So things happened pretty slowly. I think there was a lot of talk about forming bands in Liverpool in those days, but not so much action. It doesn't seem as if there were bands playing dozens of gigs. It was more like bands playing a couple of gigs, breaking up, and then just endless kind of philosophising about the sound they wanted their band to have. (laughs) When we get a band together, this is how it's going to sound. Yeah, 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 that's right. But by this stage, 77, 78, punk was already more or less over, so they were trying to kind of think of a new sound. Mm. Well, I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit here into the sound of Liverpool being a Mm. little bit distinct and different from the other regional cities that came in the wake of punk. 
Yeah. And there's a definite sound to Echo and the Bunnymen and and the other bands, Teardrop Explodes, whoever, yeah. uh, in that it's a little bit more rooted in the 60s. Kind of took those influences, or the bands that we've talked about, anyway, uh, and sort of brought that to the the post punk landscape. It was yeah, a completely yeah. different sound. I mean, when we we will hear some of the tracks through the course of the podcast, much more of a sort of a beat combo sound, mm, mm. more traditional, yeah. more melodic, power pop sort of thing, which definitely has has its roots in what yeah. came from Liverpool, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, some band called the Beatles and some others mm, not yeah. as well known. Yeah, yeah. Um, that seemed to have uh, ten years later seemed to be formed the basis of the sorts of sounds and bands that these guys wanted to do as distinct mm, from the Manchester mm. bands and Birmingham bands and London bands. Yeah. So we're, we're at 78 and we've, we're, we're finally getting the Bunnymen together. We've finally got them together, the two of them, um, and they don't have a drummer. Do they have a bass player yet? I can't recall because... You weren't there? Julian Cope didn't, uh, didn't, didn't, write didn't mention book? specifically when <laughs> Les Pattinson joined the band, but funnily enough, all these Bands kind of intermingled, and they were they were all hanging out at each other's gigs. They were going on tours with each other. So Ian McCulloch went on a on a Teardrop Explodes tour, for instance. Mm. And the Teardrop Explodes first album, Kilimanjaro, Les Pattinson came up with the name Kilimanjaro. Well, so, there's also yeah. the song read it in books. Which yeah, they yeah, both yeah. Yeah, that's had right. a hand yeah, in writing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. both claimed the other didn't have a hand in writing. Yeah. But it's on the first of each of their albums. It's it's a bonus track on one of their albums. and it, Well, I heard it today on the Bunnyman album and I know it's on a, on a, a, a two-drop exposure. Yeah, mm. I think it might have been an extra track on, right. on so the CD that, that, You don't get much closer than that. No, that's right. That's when Echo and the Bunnymen started. I think their first gig was the same evening as two-drop Explodes' first gig. Right, so 78. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it was so, yeah. November 15th um, and that was at Eric's. Yeah. Which is the, the centre of all things in Liverpool mm. For, mm. in those days, yeah. yeah Every absolutely. band that came through town played at Eric's. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think it closed down 1980 or something, so yeah. it really was just the late 70s. Yep. It was a, the place where everyone hung out. So, Graham, you are a massive fan of Echo and the Bunnymen. Mm. Were you there right at the start in terms of like the first single, the Pictures first on My Wall? independent single, no, wasn't it? it would have been Rescue. It was, uh, yeah, it was 1980. I think the radio station where we grew up, Triple Z, played it. And also there was a uh, a Brisbane band called The Humans and uh, I saw them one night and they did a cover of Rescue. And when they did that, I thought, oh, yeah, I know that song. And then uh, not long after that, I bought the single. to you about them in the post-punk landscape such as it was? Well, initially, I hadn't really seen them at this point, but I really liked Ian McCulloch's voice, kind of one of those soaring, majestic voices, mm. and it was unlike punk voices at the time. I guess that the sound, the Liverpool sound at the time, as you said, it drew a lot from the, the 60s, so uh, a lot of the singers were uh, a bit more tuneful, I guess. Mm. Um, so you'd been waiting for this sort of thing to come up. When were they finally going to start singing? <laughs> But they weren't really big on kind of melodic chord changes in the verses, or whatever. Like they would often sit on one chord or mm. or two chords, and so some some of the verses of their songs throughout their career are mm. a bit ungainly for me. Well, that's why the post-punk bands of this ilk are more aligned with punk than, say, the other guitar bands of the time, like, say, um, Dire Straits or something, Mm. because the songs they wrote were built around uh, a sometimes monotonous guitar riff. And the the vocal melodies were were mournful and um, they, were, they were sometimes morose even. It was kind of dark but not in a Joy Division dark no, in no. way. Um, certainly well, the cover art yeah. and the, the look of the band. It's the first album anyway mm. um, has elements of that kind of thing in it but it's mm. quite mm. different. Well, I think they were, they were always a bit more influenced by American bands both from, from the 60s and afterwards mm. um, than a lot of their post-punk compadres. So... Um, now, there's a Doors 
Influence there. That was one mm. of the things I was going to say for yeah. sure. Um, Without the of, keyboards, because they didn't really ever use yeah. keyboards, but a little but, bit of Iggy and, um, for instance, there's a line on the Rescue single. I think um, is this the blues I'm singing, mm. and just even invoking the idea of the blues mm. is is a really strongly American and really strongly un post punk <laughs> idea. It was so yeah. they were quite comfortable in that terrain. I think doing doing something a little bit different and mm. being I think the, more American. The, 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 the the scene was set for something like this, and I think as we keep going back to anything was was kind of on the table, mm. which yeah. was what makes this period so fascinating. Mm. Um, they were completely out on their own, but at the same time, they slotted in quite well with other bands, you know, on, on different tours. They weren't something that you couldn't really see working, mm. you know. It was still in that what we used to call a new wave sort of territory. Yeah. But uh, certainly the way they looked. Mm. Um, I was going to ask you when you first saw them, but it would have been probably the video for Rescue or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I don't know even know whether I would have seen the the video. It was it was mainly the music that I heard. It was mainly the singles. I had Crocodiles. First um, album. Yeah, yeah, which I really liked. I particularly liked Pictures on My Wall, Stars of Stars, mm. all that jazz. Actually, when they released Pictures on My Wall, it was a single of the week in um, Sounds or one of those names. Can you hear it? The sound of something burning, something changing. So that was with the drum machine? Um, Peter DeFreitas? I've never known how to pronounce his name. DeFreitas? DeFreitas? He's dead anyways. Yeah, he passed away, but, but he joined after that first single. But the fact, that, the fact that they had Single of the Week with their very first single, the critics took them to their heart like almost immediately. Well, that's yeah. what I'm saying. They had, they had success straight away, so they mm. weren't exactly like toiling away. That album, no, Crocodiles, no. was uh, top hit number yeah, 17 top, top 20, yeah. UK, which is mm. a fantastic start for mm. a band out of nowhere that yeah, presumably yeah. You know, hadn't been together yeah. for very long. But and I think that had something to do with the way they looked, which is what I was going to say to you about when you first saw them. Ian McCulloch looked like a rock star mm. yeah, absolutely. from day one. The f- Once you know, he'd taken his thick glasses off. The bee-stung lips, you know, mm. the sort of gothy-looking hair, like it predates that kind of look. I thought they just looked like a band mm. straight away. And when I saw him, I thought, well, he's, he's a rock star. Yeah. He was yeah. born to do this because that's what he looks like. Yeah. And he could yeah. sing as well. He was, he was mm, big yeah, on the yeah. octave jumps. He liked to do that sort of yeah, stuff yeah. Yeah. and get but, right up there. Well, a big melodic voice, yeah. which was quite unusual at the time. Well, mm. uh, we were talking about this earlier. Though. They're sort of inhabiting similar territory to what you two were mm. at the time. The little yeah. guitar-y riffs, the soaring sort of choruses, the yeah. the uplifting sort of thing. You know, it was very yeah, much yeah. – maybe it was a thing that was happening and people were looking for in the wake of punk. You know, that's yeah, certainly yeah. something that a few bands were doing. But yeah. Yeah. Um, they stood out for the way they looked, which is obviously something I've noticed with yep. bands. Mm. Straight away, they had a particular kind of glamour about them. I should point out that uh, Bill Drummond was managing them at, mm. at this point. And involved in the production. Yeah. Bill Drummond being? He was in the KLF. Mark, yep. I think you probably yep. know a bit more about Bill, Bill Drummond than that. No, well, sort of, yeah, famous sort of provocateur, mm. musician, yeah. producer, yeah. Um, you know, supposedly burnt a million pounds a few years ago, though there's some yep. contention about whether that ever happened. He was manager of Teardrop Explodes at the same time. Mm. Okay. A bit of a Liverpool icon, mm. a bit of a Tony Wilson yeah. of Liverpool. Yeah. Yes, I was going to say, was he the Tony Wilson of Liverpool? There's only one Tony Wilson, but um, yeah. <laughs> and he did perform a rescue mission on the first album so the band started recording the first album and Julian Cope heard some early mixes and his judgment of it was that it sounded as if the the producer Pat Moran I think his name was had turned everything up as loud as possible and then gone and done the crossword (laughs) that's one way of doing it so so then Bill Drummond came in and co-produced the album I think and it's a very Basically, polished product, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it sounds really good and very um, sparse instrumentation, but everything really works. Mm. I remember having the first two albums on either side of the cassette, which was something you did in those days. Yeah, yeah. And playing them both, you know, over and over again, and not really being able to differentiate between them. To be yep. honest, I mean, they came out within a year of each other, mm. but yeah. the sound and the production and the and the, the general idea behind it all. There, there wasn't a huge leap between the, the first two albums. But, I don't um, think there was a huge leap in their career. In general, I think I was talking about this with Patrick before, you, and you said something interesting like the, the the first song being Rescue, let's say, 
and the last song or second last song on the fourth album or something, mm. you, you wouldn't say there's a huge difference. You could pretty much mix them all around and end up maybe there's a little bit of production mm. changes. But And that's over a four-year period That's over a four-year period as opposed to other bands that we've spoken about that have made these stylistic leaps. I think they had a sound that they were good at and that they liked and they kind of refined it mm. to have bigger mm. hits and so on. But it, I, know, I think Ocean Rain was, was, was definitely different to the, the other three. But, um, I, I don't say um, different, but no, like, wow, they've really shift, gone into leap. somewhere else with this. Mm. I think they're consistent and I think that's not a bad thing. Mm. Um, mm. But the sound they had was nailed from day one is what I guess I'm mm. trying to get at. Like you knew straight away with that first song, this is what this is. Mm. Yeah. And they kind of pushed that and kept that sound and refined it, which, which was fine. Yeah, I feel if we're going to move on now to the second album... Heaven up here. Because uh, we seem to be sort of discussing them almost like a like a double album sort of set. <laughs> I feel like um, Heaven Up Here, the second album, which was released, what, 12 months later or so? About that, yeah. May um, 1981. Top yeah, feel, 10 UK top ten, yeah, hit. Yeah. That, it feels really different to me, I, I must say. Mm. Heaven Up Here. It feels so, much, much, much moodier. Moodier. See, I, a bit I was, more melancholy. I was reading about how one album's dark and this one's mm. moody and I'm going, you guys have never listened to any Joy Division, have you? <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> or, uh, or Public that's Image right. or anything that's really right. moody and dark. It's, it's not. Really, the Bunnymen was never a kind of like slit your wrist kind of band. No, oh, but I, well, it's not that far. I wouldn't go that far, but uh, but there, there was definitely some moody stuff on there. I guess you got to define moody. Well, but, there's, um, I mean, but elaborate, um, Patrick. Second album, Turquoise Days, for instance, is quite melancholy, I would say, and over the wall. Was quite dark. The Australia only single. The Australia what only was single. that about? Why did they release a single have, only did, for did Australia? Did it coincide with their tour of Australia? But is, that's an unusual thing. They weren't yeah, ever yeah. huge here. Yeah, no, that's right. No, it was, yeah, that's right. That would so, have been their first tour here, '81, which we were talking about earlier. You say that you saw them at Cloudland. Yes, yes, it was um, November '81. At Cloudland. And I saw them at, uh, I think it was East Leagues, which we think may have been the same. I'm sure that would be the same tour. We may have to get Googling on this. They didn't come out again for a long time. Well, that must have been the same time. I saw them when they had camo netting all over the the stage. This was their camo period, actually. Yeah, which was a very, it's a cool period. But um, (laughs) maybe they did a couple of gigs in Brisbane, which seems unusual as well. Yeah. Yeah. The funny thing about the camo is that Julian Cope, this is going to be my last, my second last Julian Cope story, um, <laughs> Julian Cope uh, was hugely into military stuff, mm. um, like he wore kind of military sort of outfits. Big and, Apocalypse Now fan. Yeah, and read a lot of, you know, books about Vietnam and all that. And he walked into his management office, as in Bill Drummond's office one day, and saw the kind of camo over the walls, over the walls, and... He said, oh, Bill, this is just fantastic. This is, you know. You've, just what we need. Yeah, you've obviously kind of like <laughs> taken on board, you know, the direction the teardrops are going in. And then Bill kind of looked slightly embarrassed and said, it's for Echo and the Bunny Man. Here's the thing. <laughs> it's not for you. <laughs> oh. oh, no. Deary me. And that's where the rivalry started between that's the two That's where the rivalry continued. 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 Yeah. Um, so what, what was the single off of Heaven Up Here, Graham? Uh, a promise, heaven up here. Was yeah. it a promise? Mm. Yeah, which which yeah. is a good song. Great. I yeah. actually like the chorus. I think it's a great chorus because yeah. the song's oh, kind of just... meandering along. Yeah, uh, and then it gets to the chorus, and you go, "Oh, that's what I've been waiting for." Yeah, yeah. Well, it didn't. It didn't really do much. No. Um, I think it, it stiffed when but, it was released. Yeah, I think that's that, that's where we were coming from in terms of our earlier description of it. Yeah. In terms of the verses, sort of. So you think there were better songs on the album? Yeah, I, I really liked um, All My Colours and um, when I saw them live in 81, I, I still have this very strong memory of, of being in the audience and swaying from side to side and uh, looking up at uh, Ian McCulloch while he, he sang this Zimbo, 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 Repeating refrain that uh, it just hypnotised me. I, I remember closing my eyes and uh, being taken away by it. I wasn't a drug taker at the time. Not like now. Or, or now. <laughs> oh, how times I like that changed. at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Are you high right now? <laughs> I didn't drink at the time either, actually. <laughs> Again, unlike now. It's a wonder you were even there. I didn't eat either. I, mm, yeah. there, there was very little that I did. I think there was a period you weren't talking for yeah, a while. As that's well. right. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that ended. <laughs> <laughs> just, just in mind. Just in time for podcasts. <laughs>
But I was truly under the Bunnyman spell at this concert, and um, I was taken in by his presence and this this wonderful song. And uh, yeah, it was it was that moment that I that I realised how much I liked the band. Had and, you not seen photos and of him them in before? particular? I may have seen photos. I, I may have seen photos, but I guess what I'm saying was that uh, I don't think I'd seen a film clip. You hadn't uh, succumbed to the cult of the Bunnymen yet. Yeah, mm. no, not yet. No. Mm. I mean, I, and I'd seen uh, videos from then on. I think the Back of Love was was the first. Actual video that I remember seeing, but was, um, were there live videos? Because there was, and th- this is a not particularly interesting trivia question, but what was Echo and the Bunnymen's first top forty hit in the UK? It was the Shine So Hard live EP. Oh right, oh, it's okay. funny how you knew the answer to that. Yeah, yeah, you even asked it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so they released a four-track live EP, which included um, All My Colours, although it was labelled Zimbo, Zimbo on yeah. the live mm. EP. And that came out a month before the Heaven Up Here album, which is a really unusual step to take mm. for a live EP to, to come out you know, four weeks before an album. But I remember seeing live clips mm. from that EP on the likes of Rock Arena or you know, those kind of music shows that, yeah. that were on in the early 80s in Australia. Well, okay. So I may well have seen it, but it wasn't until I'd seen them live in '81 that I saw the otherworldliness of Ian McCulloch because mm. uh, he was a star. He was a real star, and I loved everything about him—his voice, yeah. and his whole look. He was an unusual guy. I, I read this story about when Les uh, Les was talking about Ian McCulloch and how he seems to be on another plane, never having his mind on the one thing, always always thinking about something else. And he invited Ian McCulloch around for dinner and his mum uh, laid out the food and everything and then Ian McCulloch excused himself and left the room and then he was gone for a long time and then Les went to find him and Ian McCulloch had gone upstairs and washed his hair. Washed his hair? (laughs) (laughs) It's polite. And uh, Les was saying that it's just the sort of guy he was. He just didn't think about... Lime furrow? Yeah, yeah. But I just thought that was bizarre. Wow, that's, that is something. But yeah, I don't know what he is like as a person, as I've never never met him, but uh, I imagine he's someone who could be a little bit difficult. Mm, well, yeah. all the best pop stars are. You never knew, and I, I was wondering when we were going to get around to this topic, but the interviews he used to do, the uh, extremely um, out there opinions he had largely about himself. Did he? And about how magnificent his own band was. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So you never know how much of that is just bravado mm. or, you know, like showbiz. Yeah. But, yeah, he certainly wasn't afraid to rub people up the wrong way in those mm. interviews. So, you know, he was quite disparaging about bands who considered themselves to be, uh, you know, soulmates, like U2 and Simple U2. Minds, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you, you will rub people up the wrong way if you say things like, I've got great lips, I've got a great face, it's not my fault. Yeah. <laughs> Or the only inferiority complex I've got is about other people being inferior. So the, the, the he had a pretty high opinion of himself, that's for sure. He was referred to as Mac the Mouth after yeah, a while yeah, because yeah. he was. Yeah. Uh, there's um, a couple of things he said about other people. <laughs> about Boy George, he said um, T's in the army would sort that mincing fat git. Jim Kerr, he says <laughs> Jim Kerr looks like W. C. Fields lookalike. That's not far from the truth. <laughs> Paul Weller, he said, for a Cockney, he's an intellectual. That's good. And uh, you two play music for plumbers and bricklayers. Wow. So he's the Liam Gallagher of his day. Yeah, mm. I think so. Yeah, yeah. That's gold. Mm. For a Cockney, he's an intellectual. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, so, yes, we've, we've hit the second album. Any more favourite tracks on there, Graham? Um, Was um, All My Colours your favourite? I think All My Colours and Over the Wall. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I always had my finger firmly planted on the fast forward button when I was, whenever I was listening to. There seemed to be a recurring theme with you, Patty, in those days. (laughs) You you only liked a few songs on each album, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I can't can't stand to listen to all of this. You're like the young people of today Mm, that they only listen listen to music by the song. Yeah. As a young person, I was the equivalent of young people of today. Yeah. Were you as annoying as young people today? <laughs> yeah, well, well, so I was told. He spent all of his time on his phone. Yeah, just mm. at the his phone rotary dial home. phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, certainly Over the Wall and All My Colours I thought were head and shoulders above the rest of the album. And I, was, I always thought that a song like All My Colours with its kind of like 
tribal drums and rolling rhythms and stuff. It's like, do more songs like that. And that's the only song they ever did that was remotely like that. (laughs) And they were much happier doing mid-paced, four-on-the-floor, you know, rockers, which, you know, and and they did probably 40 songs that were, you know, of a particular beats beats per minute. Mm. Um, Mm. And, yeah, which, which were fairly much of a muchness stylistically. And it just seemed obvious to me that, man, something like All My Colours is just fantastic. Mm. Well, this goes back to what I was saying before. I don't think they ever made any great leaps in style. If you compare them to, say, Simple Minds, those couple of albums where one after the other there was just incredible growth. Mm. I don't think that's what they're known for and that's fine. Mm. Um, You you can get a compilation of their first four albums called uh, Songs to Learn and Sing. And I would probably challenge you to tell me which album those songs are all from if you didn't already know because they're very consistent in terms mm-hmm. of the sound and what they're doing. Yeah. Whether the producer, producers are the same people and I don't know, but there's definitely a consistency there. Mm. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. And it's not a criticism, just an observation of yeah, com- yeah. comparative thing to, uh, to some of the other bands. Yeah. Um, so have we decided they only came to Australia once? Was that the no? The, the, well, they came in those met, days. Yeah, in those days, I think it was just yeah. the once. But the, the, in the, they came three times in the in the two thousands in the previous decade. Right. And they came once this decade, which I had no idea. Like I definitely would have gone to see them. Well, it's only the two of them now, and, isn't uh, it? Yeah, I, think so, I, yeah. I did see that the, the Cloudland gig. They were supported by Scarpa Flow and Zero. Zero, yeah. Who both very good Brisbane bands uh, from right. from those days. Yeah, well. I mean, bands that I'd seen around the place or used to see Zero quite a bit. Mm. Not as good as the go-betweens. No, no. But then who is? Let, let's let's, let's not start yeah, on the go-betweens. Let's not get onto the go-betweens. No. <laughs> they certainly will not be featured in any post-punk podcast. There will be no, do. we'll be doing no documentaries about them. There will be no mention <laughs> forthwith mm. of the go-betweens. No. So um, uh, how, how do we how do we sit from first to second album, Graham? How are you loving them so far? I'm loving them. I think at the time I listened to the first album more. Mm-hmm. Had but, you adopted but, any affectations? Oh, always. <laughs> but, 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 but nothing relating to the Nothing events. related to the Bunnymen. Oh, okay. okay. I, I think uh, you'll How know. How the collagen injections and the overcoat wearing going? <laughs> any, I think you'll know, uh, Mark, that at the time I started wearing a scarf. I did hear a story about uh, has, you wearing a scarf in Brisbane, which uh, is no mean feat. <laughs> no. <laughs> How is the that temperature for an, had dropped under 30 that day. <laughs> How's that for an affectation right now? <laughs> I don't think I knew you then. Mm. I wish I did because I would love. It was to have a chilly Christmas that. day. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't easy to follow your favourite bands in Brisbane. Let me tell you, I, mm. I suffered wearing a leather jacket through many a summer. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you, you try being a goth in Queensland. It's it not just, easy. It your makeup runs. Yeah. Mm. You can't help but get a tan. It, it's not easy. Is it, it would have been difficult. Being it would have been almost impossible to be an overweight punk, probably <laughs> just because of the amount of. The sweat. Um, mm. We were the thinnest punks in the, in the world at the time. <laughs> um, can I just say that uh, after the second album, uh, drugs made an appearance. For you? <laughs> no, no. Thank God. <laughs> and my songwriting improved. All of a sudden people wanted to be around me. This is Ian McCulloch? You're talking about yourself. Ian, Ian McCulloch and, and the rest of the band. Okay. Actually, no, it wasn't the rest of the band. It was mainly Ian McCulloch. Right. Who, um, Have we moved on from Heaven Up Here? Well, yeah, I, I've um, I've got nothing else to say about Heaven Up Here. It was I'm not pro- done. It was produced by Hugh Jones. <laughs> this is definitely my favourite Echo and the Bunnymen album. Really? Oh, really? Uh, How so? Well, in retrospect, I wouldn't have fast-forwarded quite as <laughs> quite so rapidly. And you I was had a things fool to for doing do, so. Patrick. You I were was busy. A fool for doing so. Yeah. There was so much great music happening. Yeah. 81 is probably the best May year. May 1981 is, is, is kind of peak post-punk. It Certainly is one of so, one of the greatest years. But uh, listening to the remastered extended version of it, there's a song called "Broke My Back," and it is a seven-minute drone, which is absolutely fantastic. Is it an a additional, drone in a good way? Additional track, or was it on it's, the original? It's album? an additional track. It was a B-side. It might have been a B-side to the 12-inch version of "A Promise," something along those lines. Yeah. And it contains a drum beat that solves any lingering questions you might have about where Larry Mullen Jr. got the beat for Sunday Bloody Sunday. You know, that's something I ask myself every week, mm, mm. <laughs> without fail. Well, I go through most of the U2 you know, catalogue. Asking why. Asking why. Why? 
Why? <laughs> For a multitude of reasons. No, no, hang on. Uh, you, broke you, my neck, the song was called. You, you've recently spoken of a public image drone. It went for seven minutes that you didn't like. Mm, that was a bad drone. Oh, this, See, is, this is a good Paddy's drone. Paddy's particular about drones. <laughs> some are good and some are bad. Okay. Yeah. It's difficult to know why. Yeah. Well, I think it was the what I thought of as a pretty horrendous vocal of the public image song. Oh, okay. Whereas this is a mesmerising drone a mesmeric of... Mesmeric performance. I've got the song, but I'm, I'm going to have to have another mm. listen. Well, you may insert it here mm. for the edification of our listeners. That's right. <laughs> Sit back and listen to a seven-minute drone. Just the first five will do. <laughs> so it felt to me that not only was it a really good album, albeit with a couple of songs that fitted into that slightly forgettable mid-tempo rocker kind of thing, but a song that didn't even make it onto the album I thought was a really interesting song with a great drum bit. I'll have to go back mm. and check that. Yeah. Worth a listen. Yeah. And they didn't have a lot of great drum beats, the Bunny Man. No, it wasn't really. Well, that's not the sort of band they were. That's, that's what I'm saying. The thing I remember most about them is the bass lines. They were really concise, sharp, mm. power pop sort of bass lines. Mm. Nicely up front in the mix, nicely played, but I don't remember a lot of the rest of the instrumentation. No. Them. The guitar stuff was kind of interesting, but not, not hugely memorable. The no. drums were. Well, can, can, can we move to the next album? With drugs making appearance, I thought that the third album, called Porcupine, was a little bit more psychedelic, I guess. Mm. So what sort of drugs are we talking about? Hallucinogens, maybe. But um, they brought in a guy called Shankar. Not Ravi Shankar. It wasn't Ravi Shankar. Not Beatles fame. No. No. Mm. That would have been cool. There's more than one Shankar, you know. In India? Yeah. Really? How racist are next, you? Next, you're going to tell me there's more there than one Lee in China. Shankars. For all the Lee in China. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, continue, Graham. So, uh, so Shankar was brought in to add sitar-like strings to the album. And um, if nothing else, this guy provided that amazing intro to the cutter. Which is kind of an eastern scale kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. yeah, and I read somewhere that it was meant to sound like the chorus of Cat Stevens' Matthew and Son. Unfortunately, we don't have anything on this particular podcast to compare to songs that have been ripped off and used. We've that's been, be, we've been because, on a bit of a roll lately with that. That's <laughs> yeah. because the Echo and the Bunny Men never ripped off anything. Totally original. That's all, right. all totally original. Or we just don't know any of the sources, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is more than likely. Yeah, Because we haven't heard an, enough Doors B-sides. <laughs> so Porcupine, right. Porcupine spawned a couple of singles. Yes. Although well, Spawn is an interesting term because mm. the Back of Love came out almost a year before. Before it, yeah. Well, you can pre-spawn if things yeah, get a little heated. <laughs> so maybe that's what I'm happened. not sure that you can retro-spawn. Well, no. we are talking about porcupines. Anything's possible. <laughs> Come yeah, on, Graham. So the Back of Love was actually a return to the charts for them. Previous singles didn't do so well. When did that come out? I'm not May sure. That I, I know that. Um, I think it was 92. Yeah, it was 82 because the cutter was a big hit in January 83. Reached number eight in the UK charts, <laughs> did it not? It did. Amazing. How did you pluck that figure out? I've got stuff in my mind that would horrify you. That's <laughs> <laughs> just one of them. In his mind and on his lectern. Um, <laughs> So there was The Back of Love and The Cutter and there was a, another great song called Heads Will Roll and Never Stop, I think, might have been a, a single too. Was, yeah, was that a separate, that was a non-album single? There were only yeah. two singles per album at that point. So, oh, yeah, they okay. did do a couple of non-albums. Yeah, Never Stop singles. came out after, oh, after Porcupine. Yeah. And you think in the in terms of the sound, there was a bit of a progression into more of a yeah, psychedelic yeah, like 60s. Bit, thing. Bit, bit more, I mean, <laughs> I know we've spoken about their music drawing from the 60s anyway. Mm. But, yeah, they tried a little bit uh, more interesting instrumentation on mm. this. It was a broader and, uh, palette, I think. Well, I think, I think so, this yeah. is the era of smash hits and the new pop. If you yeah. think about what was going on in, in 1983, you've got yeah, ABC yeah. and... From, and you know, not, not you know, those sorts of bands. Mm. Simple Minds are having hits. You uh, too. And Ian McCulloch yeah. became like a bit of a pop star at the time. Well, he always looked like one. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Whilst you couldn't really put Echo and the Bunny Men in with you know ABC and all those sorts of bands, he was on the cover of Smash Hits, mm. for instance. You mm. know, he, yeah. he did have that kind of look. Well, when you have yeah. a top ten single, that's going to happen, yeah. isn't it? And it's a great song, yeah. The Cutter. It's an incredible mm. song. Like mm. it's such a weird 
bunch of stuff they've thrown at the wall there, but which has somehow turned into like that bass riff mm. is extraordinary in itself. And, and and for my money, it's pretty much the only extraordinary riff, the bass riff in an Echo and the Bunnymen song. finger at that rhythm section and say you guys let the team down Didn't overall <laughs> um, <laughs> just that they could have done so much more I would have loved them to have been much more inventive overall mm. than they were but you know as a baseline it's an amazing baseline he was no Derek Forbes he was no Derek Forbes no um, wouldn't, wouldn't know what he is and, no. and yeah it's just it's, it, it's a pretty wacko it's a great song from the top a, I think it may have even been a hit here in Australia. Yeah. I don't yeah. have yeah, those it was, it was certainly a figures hit. in front of me. Really? really? In that dark Funnily brain enough, of yours? The, the daft brain, did you say? <laughs> um, but, yeah, great song. I don't remember the other single, which was called Never Stop. Is that correct? Mm. Yeah. Um, I may know it. I'd started to drift away from the That was the more of a da- dance, that had kind of like a, a dancey kind of feel to it. Did it? Like a slightly yeah, and it, it, it goish almost? I think it appeared in a movie or something because they became, especially with, uh, what was his name, John Hughes? Mm. Especially with him, you know, how he used to um, play He loved bands. his English he loved mm. new the, wave bands. English new wave bands, yeah. Mm. This one never had any particular success in America, did they? They were one of the bands that never really broke in the States, but they were featured in quite a few movies. I think they mm. featured in Donnie Darko later. Yeah, so. Donnie Darko mm. and... What, it was the opening scene of Donnie Darko featured The Killing Moon, mm, but yeah. the director's cut yeah, as it says. cut Killing Moon and replaced it with Never, Never Terrorist Never Terrorist Terrorist Above. Above. <laughs> Strange, it's not quite the same song really. Mm. Mm. What a what an extraordinary, mm. what an extraordinarily d- dramatic change to make to yeah. an opening scene. So you were still on board the Bunnyman train? I was very, very much, mm. very much. One interesting thing, um, Bill Drummond organised this next tour for them and their tour uh, in 83 followed the ley lines of England. Do you know what ley lines are? It's like a, is it a straight line going sort of all the way from A to B, wherever A to B is supposed to be? From A to B, yeah, and and the points on the map are meant to be significant Mm, points. Yeah, in what, in sort of paganistic way, is it? Yes, I think so. It's it's bullshit, actually. um, Oh, says you. But but the fact that they... Apologies to all our pagans. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry if I offended anyone. But the fact that they, they decided to... Tour, yeah, um, on the ley lines. On the ley lines, <laughs> <laughs> and apparently um, Ian McCulley was getting upset that they were playing all these terrible backwater pubs everywhere. Mm. But it was okay because it was on the ley line. Yeah, I'm sorry, we can't play the CBD of Reykjavik. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it sounds like a bit of a publicity stunt. It, it was. Well, that's what Bill Drummond was all about, wasn't he? Mm. Well, B- Bill Drummond is credited with unilaterally deciding to add trumpets to the cutter without the band knowing. Oh, really? And obviously they worked out quite well. Well, that's his writer's manager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Isn't that in the contract? Well, I mean, I think he was uh, he was vindicated with the, the single being the number he eight was for them. It's, and it's a fantastic and, trumpet. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure whether they're synthesized trumpets or not, but uh, well, yeah, they, they really use add a lot. Of, I was going to say, they didn't use a lot of synths. They were never really big on any, any of that sort of malarkey, no, were they? No, no, that's right. Uh, I should also say that Porcupine reached number two in the UK. In the UK, so yeah. That was yeah. their biggest hit and probably remains so to mm. this day. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it is, it is extraordinary. The, the odd thing with their singles, though, is that... Um, their most successful single was much later on, like in the nineties. It was it was one of their more covers. successful than this. Yeah, it was. Okay. Uh, well, it, it well, was I think like they had 10. a song off Evergreen in the nineties, which got to number eight. Yeah, that, that, as that did was it. the cutter. So equal. So first. nothing, oh, okay. nothing lasts forever. I think it was called. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and around this time too, uh, he got married to his longtime girlfriend. Lorraine Fox, who was, um, I remember her being out here because a friend of mine at uh, Cloudland after the show, he actually got to, to meet them and uh, he was with the band and Ian McCulloch didn't say anything. He just kind of st- stood there um, snogging his girlfriend who was this um, Samantha Fox, uh, Samantha Fox, wow. this Lorraine Fox girl. Now you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, yeah, so, so it was a, a relationship that went forever, um, like, like from before the, the band got together. Are they still together? I don't think so. So it didn't go forever then? No. no. 
Mm. Nothing lasts. It, w- it was a love that lasted right. through the ages up to a point. <laughs> up to a point where it ended. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah, well, that, that's actually um, all I've got on that that, uh, that album. But how do we feel? How do we feel in, in, the, in the pantheon of mm. Bunnyman albums? Where mm. does it sit for you, Greg? Okay. Actually, I would probably put it uh, second because I, I, I still really like Crocodiles. It wasn't so big on Heaven Up Here. Paddy's favourite. Yeah, mm. Paddy's favourite. Mm. But I still liked it. Remember, I was a big fan. And yes, up to that point, probably my second favourite album. But they were all trounced by the by the following album. Wow. Big Oof. call. Wow, that's the <laughs> following <laughs> album being 1984's Ocean Rain. Ocean Rain. We should just point out here, they're, they're pretty prolific. We've got 1980, 1981, 1983 and 1984. Yeah. It's pretty much an album a year. Not bad going. Yeah, more or less, yeah. 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 And touring. Yeah, and also non-album singles, singles. live EPs. Yeah, not that bad. Sort of thing. Not yeah, bad yeah. for a bunch Although of lazy finally, scousers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although their first single, Pictures on My Wall, came out 14 months before their debut album, which is quite a long time in post-punk land. It is. Mm. So, yeah, maybe they were just getting a long run-up. Getting to... their speed up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But so Ocean Rain Grain, May 1984. Yes, produced by Gil Norton. What, what, what astounded you about this album? Well, first of all, The Killing Moon. <laughs> I, 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 just had to say, I just have to say The Killing Moon and uh, all questions are answered. Under the blue moon I saw you So soon what, what is it about the Killing Moon that you feel um, well, is the great leap forward? I could quote Ian McCulloch here and say it's the greatest song ever written. <laughs> he said that about all their songs. Yeah, but he particularly said that about this. <laughs> he wrote it in a dream, apparently. He woke up and... Uh, he, he credits God, doesn't he, as like co, co-lyricist. Yeah. yeah. Nice. God doesn't God, get enough credit in my no. book. <laughs> well, it's God's only credit. Um, as a Bunnyman, you know, on, on Bunnyman albums. Yeah. He gets blamed for a lot, you know. He doesn't really get the kudos. No, no. He Certainly not for his songwriting. Not for his songwriting, no, no. Well, well done, God. Bit of balance. <laughs> nice track. <laughs> nice track, geezer. Mm. But, yeah, it was great. I bought Ocean Rain and I, I played it constantly. And you you did drowned you? in the deluge of Ocean Rain? And I still play it today. Really? Today? As did in you? Friday. <laughs> As in Friday, yes. I play it every Friday. Did you hear Killing Moon before Ocean Rain came out? Yes. So uh, Killing Moon came out maybe three or four months before Ocean Rain, the, the Ocean Rain yeah, album. Yeah, it, it, it was just, it was the end of 83, but uh, Ocean Rain came out right, early 84. And yeah. you said to yourself, hello, clear some space on the turntable. <laughs> That's right. This is going to be a good one. <laughs> It was Christmas. And that's how Graham used to talk to himself. I know, it's <laughs> He used to get annoying after a while. <laughs> he spoke in some sort of strange northern accent. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Governor. <laughs> Enough of the English dustman routine, Graham. It's not cutting it in the lumberyard. Uh, where were you working at this point, Were you Graham? working in a lumberyard at the time? We have talked about that for some time. 1984, where, where were you? 84. Oh, I, was in, I was in liquor stores by then. You moved up. Yeah. I was in the lumberyard. Hmm. I was selling alcohol to underage kids. <laughs> You're calling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you finally found what you were good for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was it, it was great. I, I, I don't know what else what else I can say about that. It was just uh, it was a great album. And um, but Graham, sorry, I can I ask you a question. Yes. So the Killing Moon single came out yes. a few months earlier, and were you disappointed when you heard the album, or did the album live up to expectations? Did oh, it, it lived up to expectations. Okay. It's your favourite yeah, Bunnyman album. It's my favourite favourite Bunnyman album wow. by far. <laughs> As a matter of fact, a few years ago, I heard that they were playing the whole album, start to finish, at the Albert Hall in London, and I thought very seriously about going out. Well, the great English public would disagree with you, Graham, that it was their greatest album because it only reached number four. Mm. That's a failure in my book. Stalled at four. It's twice it's as unsuccessful <laughs> as number two. Failed at four. Yeah, stalled. Mm. Yeah, it 
I think when you have a 35-piece orchestra on it, as more or less every track has has the orchestra, every track or nearly every track, nearly every track, yeah, they, they. Uh, you're 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 leaving yourself wide open to accusations of pretension and overblownness. Is that a word? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay, not in the dictionary. <laughs> Not the conventional sense, but, but it's a word. Uh, yeah. Okay. It's a word that he spoke. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, it was bold. I mean, I remember hearing that album in 84 and thinking, this is a brave move. Because but you would have heard it on Fast Forward, so it's a bit hard to uh, judge. Well, well, it's funny you say that because I was living in the first shared student household of my life. At this that is stage. 84. Third so year uni, 84. Uni, yep, yep. Um, and, How are things going? And one of my housemates, well, no one's doing the washing up, <laughs> but one of the housemates likes to cook a Sunday roast, nice. which makes up for, you know, all manner of other transgressions. But, yeah, one of my housemates, the Sunday roast cooker. <laughs> the sun, as he was known. The Sunday roaster, I think, <laughs> as, is a better term. As, as he was known, he mm. bought that album. He bought, he bought Ocean Rain. And so it was, it was on high rotation for several months, particularly side two, which I think is vastly superior to side one. Oh, controversial. Uh, yeah. yeah, so that was certainly part of the soundtrack to my life in 1984, living in Ligon Street, Carlton, across the road from the Housing Commission Flats. Those were the days. Um, oh, okay. But I was never a big fan of side one. I thought there were a few duds, but, I, but obviously Graham, I'm in the minority. hold yourself back. <laughs> He doesn't know what he's talking about. Thorn of Crowns. Yeah, well, Thorn of Crowns. The, the Is that lyri- actually a title? Yeah. Gee. The, the, the lyrics of Thorn of Crowns wasn't great. Mm. But um, we'll get to that later during the worst song segment. <laughs> I think it's interesting that they released three singles from this album. They broke with mm. tradition. They, they never released three singles. The Killing Moon, Silver and Seven Seas. Mm. Yeah. Yep. The Seven Seas. What a great song. What, one of my yeah. favourites of all Fine time. song, Side Two. And Good Seas. Mm. All Is that Side Two, Seven Seas? Yes. Seven seas, swimming them so well. There you go, Paddy, vindicated you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Mark, you, your relationship with Ocean Rain? Look, as I said earlier, before I was shouted down, I think, mm. by Graham, um, I'd kind of left the Bunnymen around you don't know about what you're 80. Talking about. Yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> I'd left the Bunnymen after about 81. Okay. Uh, the first two albums I, I was on board. So you're so you're a big fan of Heaven Up Here. Big fan of Crocodiles. Big fan of Heaven, Heaven Up, Up Here. Here. And, and then kind of, and did did something happen in particular? Well, there was an incident. <laughs> I'd rather not go into it at okay. the moment, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I lost legal the advice pending. Yes, the the, the Bunnymen lost me there for a while, and um, yeah, I kind of dipped my toe in every now and again. I was aware of what they were doing, quite liked them, but. It goes back to to a little bit for me, as I said, that I didn't feel there was any progression. Mm. I felt like I could turn up again and and yeah, buy an yeah. album, and I'd pretty much be back on board. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And that's just where I was at in, in in those days, because that that period in music, everything was happening so fast and things yeah, were changing. Yeah. Yep. You were into something else. The f- yep. Two weeks later, it had changed again. Yeah, and, yeah. And, well, the uh, yeah. the back of love single came out in the middle of '82, so several months before Porcupine, and I remember hearing that and thinking, yeah, it's it's it, it's fine. We've got Simple Minds over here. Mm, yeah, yeah, you know? that's right. What's going on? There's, yeah. there's stuff happening. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Simple Minds were moving from Sons and Fascination to New Gold Dream at that time, mm. and the Bunny Men were kind of treading water a little bit. I look, 1982 was a great year for pop albums. I mean, Lexicon of Love came out, yep. uh, Glittering, mm. uh, New Gold Dream. A lot of great stuff came out that year. So I was kind of mesmerised, I think, and I mm. wasn't paying attention to, to, to the Bunnymen quite so much. Yeah, yeah. That, um, I don't know what that says about me, but um, no criticism of the album. I, I should go back and listen to it. I must say I always liked the imagery. The album covers were great. The yeah, titles yeah. were great. I mean, Ocean Rain is just so evocative. It's a fantastic mm. album title yeah, and the yeah. cover is great as well. Yeah, yeah. true cover, yeah. Well, yeah. One one interesting aspect of, uh, of Bunnymen covers and it carried on, I think, onto the, the Evergreen album in the 90s is that their album covers don't translate very well into a CD format because the band members are quite small. Mm. Aren't they a gatefold <laughs> thing too? Isn't there usually a back and a front Yeah, yeah. on a couple yeah, of them? Yep. Which doesn't yeah. really work yeah. on the CD. The no, same no, that's way. right. You yeah. can't put that yeah. up on your wall. No, and and on the cover of Porcupine, for instance, uh, what which was shot in Iceland, I think, mm. and so the figures, like the band members, are quite small. 
And it's the same on the ocean rain cover and it's the same on the evergreen cover, I think, in the 90s. And those covers look fantastic as 12-inch mm. albums, but they're just a little bit hard to discern mm. okay. on CDs. Disappointing. Um, I know we haven't quite finished with Ocean Rain, but I do want to say that Bring On The Dancing Horses is a great, great track in 1985. Bring on the dancing horses Headless and all And that was on pretty intense soundtrack. soundtrack. Yeah. yeah, they didn't do anything for quite some time. It was the only track that they they sort of disappeared for a while. Mm. They released Songs to Learn and Sing, which was a compilation of the first four albums and a couple of our um, B sides of singles, mm. and Bring On the Dancing Horses, which is which is a great song. Mm. In, in, in the, in the, the well, that, that would probably be a good album if you didn't know Echo and the Bunnymen. Maybe getting that album would be. A a good introduction. Mm. I had listened to it today a few times and I think I was saying to Patrick, or maybe I said it earlier in the podcast, I still would struggle to tell you what album each song came from. If you put that album on shuffle and mm. said, tell me when that was from, they, any of them could be interchangeably moved to any of the albums, which, mm, is, which yeah, is interesting. Yeah. Although the Ocean Rain album, I think, and I'm not sure how this translates, maybe not, not so noticeable on Killing Moon, but the strings are so prominent on a lot of Ocean Rain that I think you could immediately tell right. nearly every Ocean Rain track from, from the earlier so albums. So the production differentiates yeah, in, yeah. in ways that, that you couldn't necessarily with, with the first three albums. Okay. okay. Mm. So how did you feel when the Beatles started using orchestras? <laughs> I was a little disappointed. Um, You're not a fan? I just felt it was unnecessary. What about when Metallica started doing it? That was even worse. <laughs> they always let you down, don't they? Yeah, I suppose... It, in the world of post-punk instrumentation, strings seem like a bit of a kind of a traditional fallback kind of option. It's for Pink Floyd. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the strings on some of those songs on Ocean Rain are fantastic. Uh, Nocturnal Me. Nocturnal Me, yeah. that's fantastic um, arrangement. And on the title track as well, there's some beautiful sweeping strings. And it's a fine line between uh, elevator kind of sounds and something really passionate, something really stirring. Right. And, yeah, they were kind of straddling that line. But but because the guitar sounds were never lush, mm. they are always kind of sharp and angular, I think. So they never kind of fell into that sort of classic overblown trap the way that other bands that have used strings might have. Mm. Mm, okay. Well, with this band, and I think we're, we're almost drawing to a close, but um, unlike the other bands that um, we've been speaking about in this podcast – I can tell you about my favourite songs or there's my favourite albums. I liked the Echo and the Bunnymen as a as a unit, but I, I wouldn't say, oh, listen to the drums on this or listen to the bass guitar on this. What the guitarist Will did on, on some songs was quite inventive. But um, to me, they weren't like a, a musician's band like other, like Simple Minds, for instance. So you're saying the sum is greater yeah, than the Yeah, the sum the is, is greater yeah. than the parts. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's, that's, uh, I, I guess that's why I like them so much. Where, where do they sit in the, the scheme of mm. things in post-punk? I mean, they're definitely contenders and they definitely rate, uh, well, obviously they rate a mention, they rate a podcast on their own, but where, mm. where do they sit in the scheme of things for, for each of us? They're a little bit forgotten. What have they contributed? To, yeah, they're, mm. they're a little bit forgotten compared to The Cure, for instance. Mm. And I have to admit, as someone in my late teens, I did think of The Bunny Man as being a bit of a, poor man's version of The Cure, that The Cure were that bit more atmospheric, that bit more melancholy, that bit more um, creative rhythmically, uh, whereas The Bunny Men had songs of yearning but not really songs of craving. reflection and craving. There was, a, there was quite a bit of pining in there. Though. There was a bit of pining, a bit of yearning. A bit of yearning. But less craving, atmospheric. Not, not so much craving. N- less craving. Right. Yeah, a bit more craving wouldn't hurt. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I suppose as someone who's a big fan of since not much in the way of embracing the new mm. I still mm. think they're a, a very retrospective band yeah, yeah. and that's what I was saying that they reminded me of a lot of the Brisbane bands of the early 80s because it was a big 60s thing in mm. Australia at the time a lot of the bands mm. around then were starting to look back to the 60s and I think the Bunnymen definitely yeah, but I, I, th- I, th- I think the Bunnymen less so, though. It's like there were the bands. I know the Brisbane bands you're talking about. Do you know about, what I mean? That kind of sound, that, and, yeah. that, that four chords. Ups and downs. And yeah, there was heaps of them. But they really did draw quite a lot from the 60s. But I, I think the, um, 
I think the Bunnymen were a bit more subtle in their in their influences. I don't think they're. It's not as obvious. Like you wouldn't hear a Kink song and think, oh, they got that from there, because there was no, always no. a. They never sounded like they were ripping off specific songs mm. by specific. Oh no, 60s they definitely fans. had their own sound. They didn't just do do straight copies of things, but mm. even their look was quite referencing the 60s. Yeah, I think probably yeah. predated a lot of the stuff that came mm. after them. Yeah. The thing is, that when, when you talk about, when you see articles on post-punk, they are invariably mentioned as, as, mm. as, as mm. One, of, one of the major bands of the period. But um, you have to look at bands like uh, Arcade Fire, who they influenced. It's a good point, yeah, for um, sure. Th- there's lots of young bands coming up now who were influenced by them. If you had to tell a, a youngster out there one album of theirs that they should go and have a look at, say you meet some young person and, you know, we're talking about who were Echo and the Bunnymen, what, what would well, you point them towards? Well, not necessarily your favourite. Yeah, album. no. I was going to say, if not uh, Ocean Rain, then maybe that one you mentioned. I mentioned the songs of mm. to learn and sing. Yeah, the compilation. Mm. The compilation. Maybe that might be a good sampler, mm. as they say. Yeah, I will definitely go back and revisit the third and fourth albums. But, mm. but I did love the first and second albums. But yeah, and I still do. But I kind of felt like they reached the road, and I I didn't continue on with them. Mm. Mm. Um, they they continued on without mm. me. Did you when you first heard Rescue? Sit down and learn how to play the riff on the guitar. I probably did, and it's pretty easy. So it's, that's it's probably very, why I could manage to do it. It's very easy. But it, <laughs> it was. I, I like the punchiness of that early stuff, mm. you know, and it, it sort of sat with what I wanted to hear. And they have a place in my heart, but it, it it's not. It's a small place. It's a small place. There's a little place there. Mm. Maybe because they're from Liverpool as well. That's that's <laughs> something that I can't quite get over. Okay. As a fan of Manchester United? I oh, just as a fan of Manchester music and factory yeah. records. And, and, yeah, I have a passing interest in Manchester United as well. Mm, yes. Um, this, <laughs> Only <laughs> since 1975. Five, yeah. yeah. A bit of a bandwagon jumper, I suppose, that year. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I think they definitely rate a mention and I think they're an interesting insertion mm, into yeah. the post-punk yeah. conversation. So do we each have a song that we loathe? From this band, Thorn of Crowns is a diabolical song. Every time I hear you say that, I keep saying, "Why don't you say it the right way?" (laughs) (laughs) That tells me everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've decided to wear my Thorn of Crowns. Is a line he says a few times, and he also says, "And if you can sort of overlay the actual song over me saying this, down, 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 down." And you Was know, that? to like a like a I think a drum beat going do 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 do. Wasn't that it's, status it's, quo? It, it's straight. <laughs> it's straight out of the Doors playbook. Oh, okay. I yeah. think, and it's pretty cringy. <laughs> I didn't know the Doors had a playbook. No. And, and, You're and, not having it. Mm. Mm. And it's it's virtually a cappella. You know, when he's singing this stuff, so it just makes it all the more it's all the more exposed and all the more inexplicable and not to be encouraged. Exactly. Not to be encouraged. Mm. Okay. So fair, for me. For fair me. play. Graham? I don't have a one. I was going to say, <laughs> as the biggest fan of the band here, you don't have a song that you could you could pull out. On the Ocean Rain title track, he goes into big voice mode in the <laughs> last the kind switch. of 60 to 90 seconds. <laughs> and it's kind of out of nowhere almost, like he's doing the... And it's like, no, nah, that's not... That's yeah. that you've just pressed the... Yeah, that's um, what I mean. Melodrama he's got, button. He's got stuff that he does, he, he relies on. And and I guess he's not the only one. But some of it I love and some of it I go, no, oh, I, I, really? I was, I was going to mention Bono, but... <laughs> well, this is the thing. They do occupy similar territory, I, I think. Just that you 2 obviously, were a bit more ambitious or mm. or whatever. They went on to a huge success. The Bunnymen never had a great deal so of success it, Why do you think that is, that you 2 reached such heights even today and mm. the Echo and the Bunnymen were pretty much... There's a progression Relegated. there. Yeah. You two definitely changed. Yeah. yeah, you can see the growth in what they're doing and the decisions to, to sort of move mm. into bigger bigger stadium sounds. I don't think the Bunnymen ever did that. I guess it was the Joshua Tree, I suppose. Well, well, I mean, even before then, you yeah. two had a little bit of success. The in red, the live at Red Rocks oh, thing was yeah, the big yeah, thing for yeah. them in America. I don't know but, why we're talking about yeah, them. But, but anyway. well, <laughs> well, Ian McCulloch has said in interviews he's been asked about comparisons with you two, and. There's the idea, I think, from him that there's something kind of dishonourable about being as successful as you two were. 
you know, it's like you're aspiring to be like there's you want to be a pop star, you want to yeah. be that big. It's like there's, in, in yeah. Liverpool you don't do that. There's yeah. something a little unpost-punk about it. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also there is the idea that the Bunnymen could have been as big as you 2 if they decided to, but I don't think they had the songs. No. By, by any stretch of the imagination they had good songs, but something like The Cutter, you know, that that is not a top ten US hit yeah, no, in the I, way I, that Pride yeah. in the Name of Love I, is I a agree. US top ten mm. hit. Yeah. No, you're right. I concede. Mm. Um, so how are we going to end this one, guys? Well, the Bunnymen are worthy addition mm. to the post-punk canon, mm. in my book anyway. Um, for the first two albums alone, I'm going to keep going. The first two albums are the ones that I know the best. But I don't think they're main players. I think they're certainly worth talking about, and we have talked about them at length. But um, they brought something different to the table. Mm. which I, I would agree was needed and there's nothing wrong with that. They certainly had their own sound and and added something different. Yeah, they sound like no one else Yeah, and the planet. And you know what else? He was a pop star and I think that's great because a lot of the post-punk bands went out of their way not to have that. And even The Cure, Robert Smith's not a pop star in the way Ian McCulloch is. No, no. Uh, I can't think of anyone else actually that fits the bill the way mm. he does. He reminds me of Ian Brown and Liam Gallagher and those guys. Mm full of confidence in his own abilities and Mouth looks the business, dresses the business and that's important. You want that in your front man and you certainly have that. <laughs>